Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, plebs, plebets, and pleblings. How are you doing? Welcome to another edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Welcoming back Dominic Frisbee on this one. Great to catch up with Dom again. Hope you really enjoy it. I always love listening to Dom. I've listened to all of his books because he reads them and he has the perfect voice. We talk about uh, a little bit, a bit of his acting days as well. So. Lots to dig into with this one. Thanks again, Dom, for everything you're doing and for coming on the show. Now, before we start the interview, there are a couple of conferences coming up that you might be interested in checking out. The Free Private Cities guys, or Free Cities, rebranding, are going to be doing a Liberty in Our Lifetime conference, Prague, 21-23rd of October. I am set to speak there. I'm going to be talking about the parallel system of education. The whole weekend is going to be about parallel systems. It's not a purely Bitcoin-only event. have to stress that. Definitely worth checking out, though. Stefan Levera is also going to be there, as is Titus Gable. This is being put together expertly by Peter Young, who's been on the show a couple of times himself. So definitely check that out. Links in the show notes. Use Princey20 for a 20% off discount. Bitcoinday.io. Do micro meetups across the US of A. One meetup per month. Check out the website. See if they're going to be near you. Use OB10 for a 10% discount. Go meet your people as much as you can. In real life, Bitcoin Bitcoin up meetups are what we need. Now, make sure you're stacking. Keep that stack healthy because we've got a juicy dip right now for you guys. If you are dollar cost averaging with one of the follow companies, swanbitcoin.com, Relay, Coin Corner, or Bitcoin Reserve, then you won't care about this dip because you will know that you are stacking on a very regular basis. This is the whole point of dollar cost averaging. Do not trade, do not lose your Bitcoin, just stack and hold. Links are in the show notes. Bitcoin Reserve, they can help you stack up to 1,000 pounds or euros per day. And they can also help you with a white glove service of putting on a big position, 50 grand or more in euros or pounds. They are going to hold your hand and walk you through the whole process. Relay, you can stack, download the app, get stacking, you can smash by with them. Coin Corner are an exchange. You can set up auto buys and get sats back with one of their other features, and they've got more features coming very, very soon. You've got to take control of these uh, Satoshis. Use shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten and get yourself 5% off the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet. This is an absolute essential move in your stacking journey. You have to take control of your keys, not your keys, not your coins. Get them off the apps, get them off the exchanges and get them into your own hands and keep those hands strong. Hoddle, don't trade. Here's Dom, enjoy the episode. 
All right, we're back with Dom. Dominic Frisbee, how are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you. I'm sorry about all the problems we've had uh, uh, organising this, but I'm delighted to be back. And thank you for your patience, Daniel. No problem, mate. No problem. These things happen. And uh, I've been busy man myself, so no problem at all. But uh, we, we should get Lauren, unleash Lauren with the question because she's going to have to run off pretty soon. Yeah, so I have two questions. But I think I might need Daddy to help because I forgot one of the words, how to say it. Okay, do you want me to prime you? Yes. She, each time we have one of these uh, interviews, she always says to me, what does this person do before we, before we hit record and, uh, or hit start on the Zoom? So I said, well, Dom, holy shit, where do I start? He's a singer, songer, singer, songwriter, actor, comedian, uh, news reporter, writer of articles, author of many books. I mean, where do I stop, Dom? So she, uh, she, she was getting very, very confused. And I said, well, he actually wrote a book that probably the most recent book I read of his was called Life After the State. And then Lauren wanted to know. What is the state? What oh, is my God. state? Um, the state is uh, an evil monster. That is, uh, the state is like um, the, it's, it's, it's very hard to define. The state is the body. Let me, let me start again, Lauren. So you have at the, at the, in, in power in a society, you have the government. Do you know what the government is? Yes. Okay, so the government makes most of the decisions and then the state carries out those decisions for the government and organises um, all the things that the government does. So, for example, a man in the government says we're going to have more health care and we're going to spend more money on health care and i want masks for everybody then it's up to the state to take the money and go out and spend it and organize the masks and organize the beds and organize the covid uh treatment and so on and that that part of the state would be the national health service in england and it's my opinion and I rather imagine your dad feels the same way that even though a lot of the times the state acts with good intentions, it's often a very bad way. And I say bad because it's inefficient, it's wasteful um, way to carry things out. And a lot of the time people get very angry with the state because they spend a lot of money in taxes and they don't get much in return. So I hope that explains what the state is, but it's actually, a, it's, it's, I'm glad you asked me that because um, it's, uh, if you can't explain something to a kid, then you don't know what it is. Now you know. Yeah, now I know. Okay. What, uh, what was your other question? My other question is what got you into writing? Um, my dad was a writer and I always wanted to be a writer. I thought I was going to write a really funny sitcom 
Do you like sitcoms on the telly? A really funny comedy show on the telly. That's what I always wanted to do. And I looked at all the best writers in history, Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, people like this. And they had all started out as actors. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be a writer, a really good writer, I should start out as an actor. And then, and that's how, I how it happened. But when I was at school and when I was at university, I used to write little comedy shows and things. And so that was always what I wanted to do. All right. Now, you might have heard, Dom, you, you, you voiced over some kids' programs, I think, before. I don't know if they are oh, kids. Oh, yeah, whatever. I did lots of voices in a show called uh, Rory the Racing Car. Might be a bit before your time, Lauren. Yeah, Have you ever heard, watched one. Rory the Racing Car? Rory the Racing Car. <laughs> no, That's how we the song goes. One. We'll have to go find it on YouTube, though. It's so very you good. Have... You might you might be a bit grown up for it. How how old are you, Lauren? Eleven. Yeah, I think you're probably about five years too grown up for it. Eleven going on twenty-one, Dom. That's the problem. What do you mean eleven going on twenty-one? <laughs> Dom knows what I'm talking about. Don't worry. <laughs> All right, do you have so where are you in the world, Lauren? Oh, uh, France right now. Uh, you're in France. Okay. I'm very jealous, jealous of the life that you lead. And you don't go to school, do you? You're home educated. Well, actually, I'm on a class now. Oh, sorry. I'm on a class now. I just had to, like, come down from the class. Oh, okay. Is that a Zoom yeah. class? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Like who, 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 how do you do that? Who, who's uh, that with? So it's it's called Agora, and it's basically there's a main room right now. Well, it changes every week, but there's um the main room's just where like they're doing something. I don't know what they're doing. Uh, the room I'm in is art, and the second room is history. Oh, okay. So is Agora like an international um online teaching service? Well, it's actually called Galileo, changing name to Kubrio, which is, I guess. Okay, but Agora is uh, only one of the classes I go to. There's okay. lots of other classes going on. Agora, uh, it's like a meeting place, right, from ancient yeah. Greece, which they use that name for a big Zoom hangout where all the kids gather on a Friday for two hours and then they choose the different clubs within that meeting place. Well, there's so. only like either two or three. So, so you, and today's art and history. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye, Lauren. Take care. Yeah, take care. Cheers, Dom. Well, now, now she's gone, I can say this. I thought Agora was a marketplace. Yeah, marketplace. <laughs> That's right. You're correct. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, one of those illegal ones. <laughs> Is it? Wasn't it? I think there was a dark, dark net site called Agora, Agora Marketplace at one point. Oh, I'm sure there probably was. Yeah, it, but it, it, it stems back to ancient Greece. I think the Agora was the, the market or the meeting place um, way back when. But uh, somebody's going to have to fact check us on that. If, mm -hmm. uh, if you don't do it yourself, mate, I know you're, you're big into your history. But yeah. uh, well, we're talking about you, you becoming an actor then. This, uh, this is something I didn't realize it, that it went in that order. But that was something that you wanted to do from a young age. That, is that what you were doing at university? Uh, well, no writer. I was I was keen on being a writer, and um, and I thought the best way to start out as a writer was as an actor. Um, 
I went to drama school. I mean, I'm, I, I, I seem to get an acting job a year, but I don't really regard myself as an actor. It's more like a sort of hobby. If somebody wants to offer me jobs, I'll take them. But, but, um, but being an actor is horrible. It's like, it's, it's really good if you're one of the top 1% or something is really successful. But for most people, the reality of acting is that you're constantly beholding to other people's decisions and the, the decisions of other people that you're normally beholden to are people that you consider wankers most of the time. So you'll basically spend your life in the hands of wankers. <laughs> so Ricky Gervais's portrayal of, uh, of extras was, was pretty spot on then? Well, there's some truth to that, yeah. What, I mean, um... the, the reality, uh, you know, we, I went to drama school and we had such a talented class and, you know, there was 15 in the class, say, and probably only two of them work all the time. And I don't even know if they work all the time. And, I mean, there was one bloke in the class who was, uh, he could have been an Oscar winner, but he, he, he was turned into an alcoholic. Um, so it was his fault. But everyone in that class was good enough to work all their life. And, and I think probably one or two of them have. Barry, even... in fact, it was one of them was Barry from EastEnders who was in um, Extras. <laughs> he was. <laughs> <laughs> no but even way. now, like even he, even he now doesn't, um, you know, he has gaps in between jobs. Mm -hmm. Do you even watch TV a... anymore? Never. Occasionally I watch footy. Yeah, I can't. I, I think it's definitely a, a big thing within the Bitcoin space where people are just, you know, dropping out of the, I, I just oh, cannot walk past it anymore. I can't even, I, I, you know, I can't even watch Daniel. Um, like TV sort of got better when it became, um, when you could curate your own content. So for example, rather than the commissioner of the BBC telling you that at nine o'clock you are going to be watching whatever it is, um, when you could suddenly go, actually, at 8.43, I'm going to watch such and such series. So that's kind of started with DVDs. And then, well, actually, it would have started with VHSs. But, but it, Netflix was what made that, you know, for everyone, that sort of TV on demand, watch what you like. Um, so, it, so that sort of makes it better. But it's just very rare that I see something I actually like. And, you know, I'm a... I'm a real snob about the spoken word. And I think it's because when I was at um, drama school, I worked really hard on voice and speech, um, getting my speech as good as possible. Um, and you listen, when you listen to not even just old actors, but old people when they speak in an era before microphones were commonplace, and their diction was just brilliant and not just English people you know I'm not just pining for the English old way of speaking you listen you know the old French actors I was listening to a load of Serge Gainsbourg and Jacques Brel last night um we were watching old Udav and they their diction was just brilliant and then even like you know you might have some I don't know some farmstead from the southern states of the United uh, southern United States in 1952 and even his diction will just be brilliant so there's an, an old way of speaking that we've lost and whenever I watch a period drama um 
And I just listen to the way the actors speak. And particularly now when you'll have like, you know, you'll have a period drama set in London in, in 1650 and there'll be a black guy in there. And you just think, well, okay, whatever. We're a multicultural society and everyone, you know, so I, I get why the whole thing is happening. Um, but I just despair at the speech. And that's not, that's not the black guy necessarily. It's just all of them cannot speak. And, and uh, it winds me up that, um, you know, other areas of society, people are so precious about the preservation of their culture and their way of doing things. And they'll criticize others for whatever, cultural appropriation or um, anything, you know, not respecting my way of doing things, whatever. And you're like, you can't speak. You're, you're recreating this world and you cannot speak. So that winds me a lot. Everyone was raving about Bridgerton yeah. It was supposed to be this series on Netflix. Everyone's wet themselves. I, I lasted five minutes into the first episode and I was like, I cannot stand this. Unwatchable. I find <laughs> it all unwatchable. Everyone at the moment is raving about this. Um, this I tweeted about it last night, this Killing Eve series. I've seen it. Mate, it, like the, the plot basically is uh, a woman detective psychopath, chasing a psychopath and they get attracted to each other somehow and end up, I don't know, each series, each, well, full series and full episode ends up in some kind of awful, bloody murder. Yeah. And, but like boomer-aged housewife women are loving this shit. And I'm like, what does this tell you about society? If they're just, if they're snuggling down with a cup of tea into the sofa to watch 45 minutes of women murdering people, and then the news at 10. What are we creating? This is, this is nonsense. Well, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about, about it like that, but now I do. You're absolutely right. And, um, you know, there are good, like what, what series have I watched? Uh, is it called Alone in Berlin or Berlin? I watched on Amazon and it's all about Germany in the 1920s. And you really feel the poverty and the... Um, uh, desperation of some of the people and the, the the desperation, the awful decisions that people are led to by their poverty. And um, it's, I, I'm not German, so I don't know how accurate it is, but it feels authentic, whatever that means. And, and so I watched a series or two of that. I really liked it. There was a series set in Russia about a, a zombie attack in Russia or a virus breaking out in Russia or something. This is before COVID. And I think I just liked it because, you know, I felt I was in Russia for that moment with Russian people and the German one, I felt I was in Germany. There was a series called Gomorrah set in Naples, which is basically just Game of Thrones, but for people in Naples. Um, and, you know, it's a bit stupid, but, you know, I'm part Italian and I really liked all the Neapolitan dialect and the fact that they're all so, they're all kind of hot, but at the same time, nobody looks like a film star. They all look like, you know, your mate from up the flats. And, um, so it, uh, so I, I like that. Um, it got stupid. It got increasingly stupid as the series went on. So, I, you know, I like things like that. And even something like Game of Thrones, you know, I, I really like the books of Game of Thrones and the series started well and just got ridiculous. But like all these, basically Netflix miniseries, they're so, they use all the devices of soap opera and then they'll put a, a sheen of, um, 
you know, medieval swords or, uh, you know, 1920s Bohemian Berlin or whatever the, wherever it's set. There's so many devices that are just nicked off soap opera and that's why they're so addictive. But even something like Game of Thrones, all the best actors are all the classical actors who spoke the language <laughs> well. So, yeah. So anyway, that's that's my little rant about that. It's not really Bitcoin focused, but but so much TV is shit. And and and, you know, it's, they'll spend hours on the special effects or the the editing or the this and that. And I'm like, why is similar hours not spent on curating uh, how people speak? I just get wound up by the speech. And that is such an old man thing to say, but that's where I am. Is it? <laughs> am I right in thinking that you are writing a musical or have written a musical, that you've got some kind of project going on? Oh, yeah. And if uh, Netflix want to come to me with a... <laughs> 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 with an offer, I'm all ears. Yeah, uh, this is correct. Um, it's actually something that my dad wrote, which is... He was evacuated from London during World War II when he was seven years old and his brother was 11. And they were sent from southeast London down to Cornwall to escape German bombs, sent from their parents. They didn't know where they were going. And they ended up being taken in by a Welsh couple down in Cornwall. And this is the story of their years as vackies during World War II. And I've always loved it. It's, the stories had various incarnations. It started as a radio play and then it was a book and then it was a stage musical. And during the lockdown, um, I adapted it to be a sort of, I don't even know what it is, an audio book, a podcast, but I spent a lot of time adapting it. And then the guy who I write my songs with, I discovered quite by coincidence that his dad had been evacuated to Cornwall as well from, from, from East London, actually not Southeast. And so I said to him, look, I need to write a load of new songs for this thing. Do you want to? And um, we spent many months together composing music and then, um, we, we were trying to record a musical in a lockdown is not easy, but we had this, we had all sorts of lucky, we had an orchestra, 15 piece orchestra. There's a cast of over 50, you know, it's a really huge undertaking. Um, I'm almost certainly going to lose my money or all my investment on it. I don't really care because it's something I wanted to do, but the, but, but yeah, I've invested a lot, but the, um, uh, we got very lucky, for example, we had the studio that we were recording the orchestra in and the woman who runs the studio was breaking our balls. Everyone's going to sit two meters apart. We're like, they're in an orchestra. You, you know, it just doesn't work like that. And, and she really broke our balls about it. And I was like, we've got to find another studio because this person's horrendous. So I phoned around all the studios and the first place I phoned was Abbey Road. Um, you know, Abbey Road as in the Beatles and all that the famous studios in St. John's Wood. And they were like, oh, well, you're, you're very lucky because the guy who was supposed to be conducting the orchestra tomorrow has to go into quarantine for two weeks. So we've got the studio free tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so I ended up, we ended up recording it in Abbey road. Um, so, you know, we had lots of lucky incidences like that, but it's, it's, it's got the potential to be as good as the sound of music or Oliver or something like that. But um, like I said, uh, it, we have to get it some traction, but that'll be coming out in the next week or week or two, hopefully. So where so, will we be able to first? Uh, um, well, it's called it? kisses. It's called kisses on a postcard, right? And so you'll be able to find it at kissesonapostcard.com. Um, but it will be it'll be released as a podcast. Well, the first part will be released as a podcast, and then the rest of it will be um, 
you have to buy it on Bandcamp. But you can certainly listen to the first hour as a podcast for nothing. Um, and hope what I'm hoping to do, a bit like they're doing, used to do in old TV series, is they they hook you with the first episode, and that's why you tune in next week. And hopefully, I'll people I'll hook people with the first part, and that's why people will buy it on Bandcamp. Awesome, mate! Sounds like a great project for you to go it through. Is. Like uh, all your dad's, was it going through all your dad's kind of writing and? Everything? Well, it was kind of it was three quarters written already, um, and I basically took the stage musical and the radio play and the book and put them all together. But I'm going to read you. Like my dad was a social democrat, Daniel. He wasn't. He wasn't a uh, um, libertarian like I am. And he, he used to say, "I was somewhere. I'm somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan." <laughs> but the uh, hang on a minute let me just let me I'm just going to find a uh, what, what's going on something's going on with my computer okay I can't well anyway the, the main character uh, who takes them in loses his son in 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 Sicily, in, in the war and with the allied invasion of Sicily. And um, obviously he's absolutely heartbroken, um, but he says the line and it always stuck in my mind when I heard it, never, 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 never trust your leaders. Churchill's a hero, Montgomery's a hero, Gwyn is dead. And it's not just this war or the last, it's all history. Into the Valley of Death rode the 600. Who sent them there? And I just think that's such a libertarian sentiment. I was, that will appeal to, to libertarians yeah. out there. It certainly will, mate. It certainly will. Now, at what point did you become that, that libertarian dom that we all know you as? Uh, because I think uh, Growing up under a social democrat, you you were probably leaning that way, at, you know, liberal arts college as well. Yeah, I, you know, I was, I, I guess it's red pilled when I was young. I just assumed that everyone who was Tory was evil, and and everyone should be a social democrat or a socialist. And we'd have stupid conversations at university, and we'd go, "Oh, yeah, communism." And uh, but then I'd see the people selling the socialist worker outside the uh, students' union, and I never really thought you're not my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I was sort of basically left wing, but I hadn't really thought it through. And I just could never understand why house prices were so expensive. And then I discovered gold in the uh, mid noughties and I started reading about gold and fiat money and all that kind of thing. And I was like, oh yeah, suddenly this all makes sense. It's a mass, massive fraud. And that's once you look at the world through the prism of money and you understand money creation and who controls money creation and also who, who controls taxes, you're like, ah, oh, and, and you realize that one body in a society has power to create money at no cost to itself, which is the government and also banks. You realize why society is so disproportionately weighted in favor of those bodies. And, and that was my, so gold was my, uh, my orange pill moment and um and then you know theoretically i'm i'm a anarcho-capitalist and i probably don't go to enough bitcoin conferences because if i don't go to a bitcoin conference for a while i find myself creeping into minichism 
But uh, it's, if I go to a Bitcoin conference of some kind and I get, I rediscover my anarcho-capitalist purist truths. But I also recognize that um, it's, we're probably not going to see it in our lifetimes, except in, you know, weird bit, citadels and city-states if somebody can eventually set them up. But the, um, yeah, so uh, there's a good line in, in life after the state, find the right answer, realize that you'll never see it anyway, but advocate it anyway, because it's the right answer. And uh, so I, I think I subscribe to that. Yeah, and well, and we found the right answer. And this is why we all coalesce yeah. around uh, Bitcoin, right? And, and get to these conferences when we can. And I know the feeling that you're talking about. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get across to, to Miami, experience that, which was amazing. Uh, was it good? Yeah, it was, it was truly amazing. I, sh I should have gone. Have you had the vaccine? No. How did you get there? there there's ways, Dom. <laughs> Will you, can you message me offline? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's there's some there's some coming up uh, around Europe, mate. Um, towards the end of August, there's one in Biarritz. Uh, there's going oh, to be. I'd like to go to that. I like Biarritz. It's a cool place. All right, then. Um, again, I'll talk to you after this, and we'll see if. Uh, yeah. Because I'm sure they're looking for speakers, so I'll I'll, <clears throat> I'll chat with the guys and see if. Uh, They'd be interested in inviting you down because they're going to be three days. The first day is going to be all English, and the second two days are going to be uh, in in French in a mix. But uh, okay. that'll be uh, that'll be a cool one for you to come down to. And there's more popping up around the UK as well. There's going to be one start of July in Bristol, Avon Valley. At, uh, okay, it's the the BTC adventure. I'll send you these links, but uh, they're definitely worth getting along to. But you you recently did a stand up, right? That, how did how did that all go? Were you not uh, shilling a show uh, that you did? Uh, yeah, well, um, um, I, I'm always doing stand-up. Most weekends I'll be doing, I'll, I'll MC gigs, but they're not, they're just sort of regular comedy nights. But I did a solo show about a month ago and that went very well at the backyard. And I'm doing another one in, at, at the end of June. And they're, they're, they're all, um, the audience that I do that, they're, they're very kind of free speech, uh, minimum state, uh, they're on our side of the argument if they haven't specifically been orange-pilled. Some of them will have been orange-pilled. So that's a good one to do. Do you sneak them in there? Like uh, drop a few orange pills on the on the crowd when they're oh, least all the expecting time. it? All yeah. the time. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> I got heckled. Stop talking about fucking Bitcoin. I got that heckled the other day. <laughs> Probably some S-head, some like uh, yeah. just uh, all angry and shit. But uh, mate, the, the the one thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, because it comes up in uh, in a few of your books, right? I um, I think you do this in the Bitcoin book and uh, Life After the State, uh, inflation, and the correct yeah. the correct definition of inflation, uh, because this is a, a topic on many people's minds at the moment, and a lot of us are facing. Uh, pre-coiners, normies, blue pills, whatever you call them, that think inflation is a direct result of uh, Putin and absolutely nothing to do with uh, what we know it is to do with. So if you wouldn't mind explaining to people like the, the original definition of inflation and, and how it has been changed over time. Absolutely. The... If you look, find an old Webster's Dictionary or old Oxford English Dictionary and you look for the definition of inflation, it will say the blowing up 
as in the inflate, you inflate a balloon, you blow up a balloon, you blow up the money supply uh, with the consequence of higher prices. So if there's more money around, the consequence will be higher prices, and that's pretty obvious. But over time, the definition has changed to mean just higher prices. So money, and when central banks and whoever is responsible for measuring inflation within a society have the responsibility of measuring inflation, they just measure prices. But they don't measure all prices. They don't measure the prices of stocks. They don't measure the prices of bonds, which are two of the biggest markets in the world. They don't measure house prices. They only measure the prices of certain consumer goods. Now, as human beings progress, we get better at making stuff. You know, phones are better today than they were 10 years ago. And we get better at growing wheat. So wheat is cheaper to produce today than it was 10 years ago. We get better at mining metal. We get better at, uh, at making widgets. And as productivity improves, then prices tend to come down because it's cheaper to make stuff because we're better at making it. Prices come down even more if you can make your stuff in countries where labor is really cheap. Uh, and so that's when we, you hear people talking about China exporting its deflation. Well, all the way through the noughties and, and the next decade, the 2010s, the tweenies, whatever they're called, China, um, you know, you could buy a product in London that was made in China. And because it was made in China, it cost considerably less to make it there than it did to make it here. So there were several things that were driving the prices of ordinary day-to-day -day stuff down. There was, one is the fact that we get better at making it. And two is the fact is, you know, globalization. And but it's only the prices of these consumer goods that, um, that the central bank is looking at when it measures inflation. So, and these consumer goods are all prone to the deflationary forces of improved productivity, whether it's globalization or cheap labor or whatever it is. So you would tend to see that CPI, consumer price inflation, would be one, two, three, four percent. It would be very low. Like house prices in the UK go up 10 to 15% a year. Are you seriously telling me inflation is not 10 to 15% a year? Everyone needs a house to live in. And the reason house prices have got so expensive is that I think it's something like 30 to 40% of new money creation goes into houses, real estate, commercial and, and domestic property. But they don't include that in their inflation measures. Now, if interest, now, if you look at where new money goes, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, Daniel, but it's something like 13% of new money creation goes into the consumer goods that are actually measured in CPI and actually what base, what governments base their interest rate decisions on. The other 87% goes into financial markets, real estate, and in some cases, actual businesses where people take loans out to start a business. But the large majority of it is financial assets and more uh, uh, housing. Now, how does 
um, money get into housing? Well, every time somebody gets a mortgage to buy a house, that that you know, you get a hundred grand mortgage. That hundred grand didn't previously exist; it was just created when the debt was issued. So that's how money gets created there. Well, how does it go into financial assets? Margin. If you do a spread bet, in order to buy a thing with a spread bet with leverage, that is new money creation. And there's and so, <coughs> but none of these are included in inflation measures. Now, if you'd included stock prices going up at 10, 15% a year and house prices going up at 10, 15% a year, then interest rates would have to be 10, 15% a year to reflect actual inflation. And you never would have seen house prices go up by as much as they did if interest rates had been 10 or 15% a year. Um, if you have a market, the prices of which in that market are only determined by the cash that people have, um, then the prices of things in that market will reflect local cash levels. If you introduce debt into, this, into that market, then that's a new way of getting money into that market, and that will push prices up. And so if houses, like mortgages, were only really invented in maybe the 1930s, the 1950s, but um, house prices reflect mortgage supply growth if that makes sense, which is money supply growth, which is inflation. If house prices only reflected local cash levels, then they'd be much, much lower because people would not have the money to drive up the prices to the extent that they've been driven up. It's new debt that's driven up house prices. We think it's because nothing gets built. It's new debt. And so that is what inflation actually is. And it is pernicious because people don't realize what's going on. They sort of understand instinctively, but it's very hard to actually articulate. People don't understand what's going on and it has impoverished a generation. And, and the generation after me is gonna be poorer than me. And I'm probably, I'm on the cusp, I'm 52, but in terms of assets, I'm probably poorer than my parents. Um, because, you know, my parents, I grew up in Kensington and we had a house in Kensington. You know, to buy a house in Kensington now, you've got to be a Bitcoin billionaire. You didn't. Once upon a time, you, you know, an ordinary middle, upper middle class family, whatever, could have a house in Kensington. Wasn't that extraordinary a thing. Chelsea was where the impoverished artists went to because they couldn't afford Kensington. Chelsea, you know, so it's um, what look, look at the Docklands, Dom. You know, this is where you had uh, like Victorian slums. Uh, yeah. 17 kids sweeping chimneys all sleeping in one bedroom now you yeah, can't I mean, get it's, it's nonsense it's it's ridiculous i mean i live in a four bed uh victorian terraced house probably this house i, I rent it but i don't want to play their games which is why i rent i'm not prepared to I, I'm, I'm i suppose i'm quite principled like that but i just don't want to put money into it because i just hate it but this house would probably be and I've got a good deal on the rent because I'm a good tenant, but this probably this house would probably be worth one and a half million, two million quid. And it's it was built for a Victorian worker. Probably cost wouldn't even cost 10 grand to build. And the bill cost has long since been paid. So how can this house be worth one and a half million quid? And that it sounds like I'm boasting. So it's just a, an ordinary terraced house in zone two in London. You know, it's just what, what these houses cost. It's nuts. It's, and it's 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 destroyed 
the prospects of a generation and in destroying the prospects of a generation, uh, it will destroy our country because they'll have kids later in life and they won't have as many kids. And then everyone will go, well, we, we the population's declining. We've got to bring more people in because we haven't got enough kids. And the locals will be gradually eroded away. Pretty sad. But we're told the complete opposite story on, on both of these things, right? Like uh, you've already touched on the first lie is, oh, the, the reason <coughs> prices are so high is because there's, uh, there's not enough housing. And then the other lie is we're overpopulated. There's too many people, which, as you said, uh, both, like, it's complete nonsense, both of it. It's the money. Well, the fucking money's broken. That's why the house prices are so damn high. Yeah. Between 1997 and 2007, the population grew by 5%. Uh, the housing stock grew by 10%. So the housing stock by grew by double the rate at which the population grew. If house prices were a simple function of supply and demand, then they would have stayed flat over the period, 1997 to 2007. They didn't. They went up 350%. 350% and the population only grew by 5%. The reason house prices went up by 350% is mortgage supply grew by 350%. Inflation went up was 350%. So it's crap. <laughs> That's the word. It is, it's, it's, it's total crap. It's... Yeah. And it's done purposefully. And this is what people, you know, they, um, they will point fingers at people like yourself and call you a conspiracy theorist. And in that case, and they'll, you know, just listen to the economists on, on the news because they're telling us the truth. And it's so damn frustrating when you know yeah, the truth. I mean, the only, the only solution to unaffordable housing is cheaper house prices. It's literally the answer. And they're always going, you've got to build more, we've got to build in the green belt, we've got to build. We do probably need to build more. And our planning laws are just so dumb and they've created these monopolies. But that's, you know, so what's going to happen when we build more? There's no point building more in, in, in outer Mongolia because nobody wants to live in outer Mongolia. You, 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 you know, the, it's the answer. If you want to increase supply, put up rates. If people can't afford their mortgages or they don't want to pay those high rates of mortgages, they'll sell. If you want to increase supply, put up rates and you'll get supply pretty quickly. But no government will do that ever. They did that between 89 and 94, and it made the Tories unelectable for probably half a generation. It just totally secured Blair's place. And so, um, yeah, the, it's, it's easy to do, but they will not do it. But interestingly now, with inflation at 8 and 10%, and their remit is to keep it at 3%, they're just putting up rates a little bit. But the system can't take more than two, two and a half percent. And, you know, inflation in the UK, I think it's eight percent. And that's official inflation. Real inflation is 15 or 20 percent. And they put up rates by half a percent. It's going to do nothing. You know, it's it's real band aid job. It's like it's like having an axe wound in your 
thigh, a massive axe wound where you just got blood and all sorts of flesh all goring out. And then you get one of those tiny little plasters that you put on a pimple. You know, those tiny little plasters you put on, on a pimple and you put that on the axe wound. <laughs> That's the way to describe inflation. I, I'd use that in your shows, mate. You might wake a few more people up. Okay. Uh, what's, um, what's been going on as well? Uh, I, I saw you tweeting about the, uh, the green movement uh, recently uh the um the hysteria over um fossil fuels and uh and this kind of nonsense what's um what's the take on that at the moment well i think that green movement and all that esg investing is just created an entirely it, it's the definition of crony capitalism there's all these people you know in the richest man in history is thought to be a guy called Jacob Fugger, who was uh, in the Holy Roman Empire in the, I'm going to say in the 14 and 1500s. And he made his money, there's three ways he made his money. One is he lent money to kings at extortionate rates of interest and then held them to ransom because they couldn't repay their debts to him and so secured all sorts of concessions for his businesses. And it's kind of not too dissimilar to what anyway. So that was one way. The other way he made his money is he controlled all the mines uh, all through the Alps and the Tyrol and Austria and Hungary and all there. Um, the gold and the copper mines. And then he'd, so he'd mine the gold and then he'd mint the coins. So he controlled the money. But the third and most profitable way he made his money was by selling absolution. So you could pay him or his lackeys money and you would buy exemption from your sins. You would buy forgiveness for your sins and you would buy security. You know, you'd buy a place in heaven effectively. And it was the most lucrative business of its day. And he built the entire St. Peter's Square, the Vatican, with selling the money he made from selling indulgences selling absolution and he was the richest man in history and what of that what of the things he actually did was actually productive well the copper and the gold mines because he bought metal into the world that pre didn't previously exist but the selling of the absolution that was just all that was was a basically an industry of guilt and we know there's a lot of guilt in the catholic church and you look at, you know, you just go through Italy, in fact, most of Europe, and you look at how ornate and beautiful all those churches are. Mm -hmm. And then you look at what's around them and you realise how much wealth just ended up in the churches relative to everyone else in society. And this green movement is a new Catholic church. The whole carbon offsetting thing, all that is, is selling absolution. So you've created this new priesthood who go around going, yeah, you're environmentally friendly. You're not. You're not. Oh, the world's going to end. You know, global warming, climate change, the world's going to end. And, you know, so you have to change how you're behaving because, you know, it's otherwise the book of Revelation's coming. <laughs> it's the same thing. And um, 
it's it's crony capitalist. It 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 causes a terrible allocation of capital to non-productive endeavor. In the future, they're going to look back at this and go, how did this happen? And you know, the reality of most green technology is that it cannot survive on its own two feet. It relies on subsidy. Wind and solar are unreliable, particularly in, in the UK. It's not always windy and it's not always sunny. And it's hypocritical because they're laying all these wind farms uh, in places where you're in countryside, we're not supposed to build stuff. And the wind farms, A, are an eyesore. They're not indigenous to the landscape. And B, they kill wildlife, they kill all the birds. And then you look at solar panels and they'll cover these whole fields in solar panels. And you're like, I can't get permission to build a house with a nice garden. And yet you can build um, these, lie these, whatever solar panels are made out of across this field. And they'll go, well, you can graze sheep underneath, please. And the, the um, reality is, is that to get a wind turbine or a solar panel involves burning huge amounts of fossil fuels. It's just because the fossil fuels are burnt out of sight and therefore out of mind that nobody realizes how much fossil fuel is required to create the green revolution. So it's just really, really hypocritical. And it's actually accelerating the consumption of fossil fuels. And then people will go, yeah, well, once you've built the wind turbine, then you've got it, and then you don't need to rebuild it. Well, have you seen? They all break down all the time. And how long do they last? 15 years, 20 years, and you're going to have to burn a load, load more fossil fuel to get the next lot. So it's very hypocritical. And the other thing that annoys me is like, you know, you have these companies like BP and Shell, and they think they're evil for being in the fossil fuel industry, and they're trying to rebrand themselves as green energy companies. Well, the, it's just not economic. It can't survive without subsidy. And therefore, it shouldn't survive. The, because it's wasteful. Um, the, if you, the beauty of fossil fuels, we should be celebrating fossil fuels because they're a unique source of energy. They're uniquely cheap. And they have made wonderful things possible for human beings. Um, you can you know, you, you look at 1900 and tax was just 10% of GDP and you could go anywhere in the world without a passport. And you're like, great, a free world, wonderful. The problem is you can go anywhere in the world. You couldn't get there. Whereas now you might need a passport, but at least you can get there because we can fly anywhere in the world. We can go by boat. We can go by quad bike. We can go by car, whatever the form of transport is. You can literally go anywhere. I think you still got to climb if you want to go to the top of Everest, but you know, there are a few places where you still got to get there yourself. But apart from that, you can go pretty much anywhere. You can, we can talk to, I'm talking to you. You're in France. I'm in London. We could talk at uh, this, this zoom calls costing nobody any money. It's free. There's access to unlimited information and, and so on and so on and so on. And it's all um, made possible by fossil fuels. And, you know, we've we've got rich in the West. We've got our nice, cushy lives and everyone in Africa and South America and Asia and whatever else wants our comfortable existence. And it's like, no, no, no. Green energy. 
green power fossil fuels. And it's like we're in the in the treehouse and now we're pulling up the ladder so nobody else can get up there. And I think it's really bad. And we should be celebrating fossil fuels. And the reality is, you know, Sailor, Michael Sailor is very articulate about this. But as we've got, as we have progressed, we get better at consuming energy. We consume more energy than ever before, and we get better at consuming it. You know, you compare a diesel engine now to a diesel engine 30 or 40 years ago. You know, I remember you used to go, you, you couldn't ride in London behind a bus on a cycle because of all the shit coming out of the diesel engine. We, you know, you look at how coal used to be burnt, all the pollution from coal, that doesn't exist anymore because we get better at, at consuming energy. And, you know, in Stone Age times, you'd burn a whole forest down just to trap an animal. You know, it's an absurdly wasteful thing to do. We'd never do anything like that. We'd shoot it with a gun. We'd farm it. And then, you know, do you know what I mean? We'd do whatever we do. And so um, there's, a, there's a hypocrisy there. There's an inconsistency there. And I think we should be embracing what fossil fuels have made possible. And the, the, the guy who's sort of, who's the lieutenant who's going up over the trenches and taking all the bullets in this argument, but also making the argument, is a guy called, um, he wrote a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He's a guy called Epstein, Alex, yeah, Alex yeah. Epstein. That's right. So I follow his substack, and he's very articulate about it. Mm. Yeah, and well, when you look at the uh, the financial market that's been built around this carbon credit, it's just like absolute complete nonsense. Yeah, uh, my know, mates just started a company. Has called, he? Yeah, it's called Net Zero or something. I mean, he, he's such a you, you know, um, <clears throat> and everyone's putting money into it, and 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 I'm just like, oh my god. Anyway, <laughs> it's literally the purpose of the company is you go around judging. You other people pay you money to go around and judge them. That's the model. So it's like, and then, um, and then you get a certificate telling you you're not racist. <laughs> but no. <laughs> so it's one. Uh, it's a rating agency, for one yeah. of a better word. Exactly. This is this is the next. This is what I was going to talk to you about. These these ESG rating agencies that are just popping up out of left field everywhere you look. There's a new. I mean, we've been here before, guys. Rating agencies have bad incentives. Look at what happened yeah. in 08 when Moody's and S&P were caught with their pants down. And yeah. It's the whole thing is going to happen again, but on a grander scale because yeah. there's and if Moody's you know you you want to know how much money Moody's and all those companies have got. You drive through Canary Wharf and you just look at the the buildings that they've got and you go fuck me, you guys are huge and all you're doing is go around going around judging people. And being paid in backhanders yeah. to uh, to to give certain credentials, and yeah, it's very dangerous. Uh, I can't imagine the amount of lobbying that is going to be going on behind closed doors for from these big companies uh, to solicit the the ESG rating agency that is going to be um, easier to work with in air quotes uh, to get that you know, AAA rating or the uh, the green credits that they need, which they can then go in. The, the next level of that Ponzi is now we can enter into the uh, the carbon market and uh, use our, um, what are they called? Uh, some carbon credits uh, and start trading those. And this is more just non-money floating around the amount of non-money that is already in circulation that is going just to push prices further away from everybody because it's just, 
as as you explained earlier, if you just keep creating all this debt and leverage and nonsense, there's only one way for prices to go. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly an added expense. And uh, it's it's an it's it, uh, that's exactly right. It's, it's yet another intervention that pushes up prices for ordinary people and makes life more difficult. And it's not just that it, like, it makes life more expensive for you; it creates a whole new argument that you could do without. <laughs> exactly. Another conversation to sidestep at a dinner party. Yeah. So I want to talk about Satoshi. Because oh, yeah. I read your I read your Bitcoin book. Uh, well, I listened to it actually, mate. Because why wouldn't I listen to to your voice? Uh, you know, v- expertly expertly narrated. And you spend one chapter going on the well, talking about the rabbit holes that you went down when you were trying to figure out. You, you put your detective cap on, like who who is Satoshi? So do you want to tell uh, the listeners a little bit about that that journey and well, yeah, that period of I your realize, life? I realise that, <clears throat> bear in mind, I wrote this in 2013, so values were slightly different then. And I realise why Satoshi decided to remain anonymous and why it's important that we don't know who he is. And But I spent a great deal of time on the hunt for him. I think it's quite a compelling reading. But the the value of that exercise was it makes you realize quite what a genius Satoshi Nakamoto was and how uniquely brilliant he was. You know, the knowledge he had at the intersection of, of, on the one hand, history and understanding money. And this was at a time, 2007, when people didn't really get it, 2007, 2008. Uh, the value of an Computing power, the brilliant spreadsheet, if you like, that is the the blockchain, the coding ability. I know some people say that the code of the original code of Bitcoin isn't very good, but nevertheless, it is still code. A lot, not a lot of people can write code. Um, the brilliance of the Satoshi's blockchain, the computer programming it solved. What a fantastic writer he was. He wrote over 80,000 words on his Bitcoin posts at Bitcoin.org. Um, 80,000 words is like a book, a large book. And there was one spelling mistake in all those 80,000 words. One, he spelled ideological wrong. He spelled ideological, I-D-E-A, logical. Um, what a PR genius he was in that the way he managed to, I mean, what a psychological genius he was, the way he got everyone in the community working for him and the incentive of higher prices, the brilliance of Bitcoin mining, you know, the verification, the self-verification. Self, you know, he, there's law in there as well. So there's just this huge knowledge at the intersection of so many things. And it required so much genius. That's why a lot of people think it was two or three people. And I think that's not unlikely. And it does look like this guy, Dave Kleiman, was involved, um, who's now no longer with us uh, because of the timestamps and the Florida. And there's, I mean, it's all circumstantial, but, but, but I, I thought it was Nick Zabo. Um, now looks like it probably wasn't. But Nick Zabo is one of the few people that's uh, um, clever enough to have done it. 
he didn't quite do it. And I think he sort of invented it. If you look at Bitgold, he sort of did it, but abstract. But doing it in practice and doing it in abstract is two different things. Um, and then how understated and humble he was throughout the whole process. So it's a, such a valuable exercise. I was talking to Richard Hart the other day. I went and had dinner with Richard Hart, which is an evening I'll never forget. Uh, Richard guy. Hart's behind the the hex guy, oh, and oh I've never met I've never met anyone more more showy showy ever. How did this um, meeting come about? Before you tell the story, how one of did you... one of the hex one of the hex people said you should go and meet Richard Hart, and they gave me his number or they gave Richard my number, and he just texted me and said, "Do you want to go to dinner?" So we went to dinner. I forget now, three or four months ago in a hotel in in town while he was coming through. You know, Richard Hart, no matter what you think of Hex, he's seriously bright. And one of the things he was saying was that uh, um, uh, you, you just get the Cypherpunks mailing list from 2007 and just get all the names. And Satoshi is one of those people because he was obviously on the mailing list before he mailed out to it. And, um, you know, you can look at that list and was Craig Wright on that list? And if he's not on that list, he wasn't Satoshi. But the, anyway, but yeah, he was a genius and he's probably dead now because he, he hasn't reappeared. He showed his head when the Dorian Nakamoto thing happened. He showed his head briefly then. So he's obviously watching it and everything, but he's not sold a single coin. So he must've been already rich not to sold a single coin or he's lost the hard drive. <laughs> he's lost his keys. He's lost them in a, in a rubbish dump in Wales. But um, yeah, so he, he really was a genius. We'll never know. No. And I don't see how you prove your Satoshi in a court of law before. A, I mean, it's just, you, I just don't see how you do that. The way to do it is, is, like everyone said, move a coin. Yeah. He's a clown. Yeah. Have you... Um, but I, I think he can't get access to the, to the wallets, apparently, if, if it is him, because there's three of them. They're in a trust in the Seychelles. And the, the, anyway, somebody in there is dead, and that has made problems. Or has given us the perfect the perfect opportunity to carry this forward, which is basically what's happening. Yeah. It's good. It means how many coins he's got, you know, 1 million coins are out of, out of supply. Exactly. Right. Let's talk about your appearances on um, the newscasts, GB news. Uh, oh yeah. You, you pop up there every now and then. What's your feel? <clears throat> Do you think people are, slowly coming around to your thoughts on bitcoin yet or are they still well, pushing back as much as they were to, i don't get many chances to talk about bitcoin on there but but the i think um it's it, you know i'm not crazy about tv and i'm not crazy about tv news but but the uh and i you know you know what goes on behind the scenes everyone thinks it's biased and whatever but it's just such a scrabble the whole thing's just like a permanent 24-hour scrabble trying to get the stories up and this and that. And so there, there are inevitably going to be mistakes. 
But the people at GB News are really nice. For some reason, they've become the poster child of everything that's wrong with the world, if you look at it through the prism of the, of the left. But everyone there is really nice, and they've given me a gig, and not many people give me gigs. And I'm very grateful to them for giving me a gig, and I'll do the gig as best I can. The show I do on there is simply a paper review show, so I sit down with two comedians and we look at tomorrow's papers, uh, some of the best stories from tomorrow's papers. So it's just basically um, three comedians talking about the news sure you i mean i enjoy it. doing it it's done really well headliners it's like the most i think it's after nigel farage it's the second most popular program on the channel and it beats all the competitors at that time we got piers morgan interviewed donald trump last week and then they repeated it at 11 o'clock <clears throat> and we beat that we got more viewers that's pretty good that's I mean, it was good. a repeat, but we still beat Piers Morgan interviewing Donald Trump. And I'm sure you'll get the <coughs> opportunity to, to drop in a few uh, Bitcoin bombshells. At, uh, I do. Whenever stage. there's a Bitcoin story, I try and orange pill everyone and they just sit there and go, oh, I don't understand what it is. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> What's, uh, I know you as well, you, you did a little bit of commentary for Real Bedford. Is that still going on? No, I don't know what happened with that. I did it. I interviewed um, Peter and then I went up to um, uh, watch a game and uh, I just said, I'll commentate it for you. And then he already had a kid commentating on it. Who's like a professional commentator's son who also wants to be a commentator. And so Peter gave him the gig. So I'm just trying to, just having problems with my computer. I beg your pardon. So yeah, I, um, so I did that once and then I wasn't asked back. <laughs> so, the, so the commentator did the commentary and I just sat next to him and I, you know, I was Gary Neville basically. And, um, and it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, but I wasn't, I was never asked back, but I, I don't think there's any malice there or anything like that. I just think it's just one of those, you know, it was, it's a fairly minor priority in the list of things. And probably a former player should be doing the, the punditry that the, the analyst stuff anyway but i really enjoyed it i really admire what peter's doing and i uh, i'm a real bedford supporter and i hope it works out for him have they been are they going to be promoted this season do you know i don't know i've not been following too closely I should, they were uh, when he took them over they were they were quite low down the um the thing but but i think they started to win a few games so they might have made it into the playoffs i don't know i haven't followed it but i hope they they get through yeah it'd be awesome all right, mate. Well, I think we've covered plenty here. Is there anything else that uh, you wanted to shield? Have you got any other books, any projects uh, that you're working on other than the musical? No. I, oh, yeah, I have. I've got one thing I would like to shill. Uh, in fact, I'd like to shill this a lot, which is I've started a Substack letter. And it's been very popular and it's now one of the top 20 Substack finance letters in the world. It's only been going two months. It's very popular. A lot of subscribers there's a lot of free content and there's also a paid letter you can subscribe to if you want to get like a monthly stock tip or something, um, which you, and, and you know, the idea is, is that you'll make more money from the tips so that that more than justifies the cost of the, of the letter. But anyway, even if you only subscribe to the, to the free letter, um, it's, it's very popular and it's doing really well. And so I would urge anyone who, if anyone 
is mildly entertained or interested by anything that I've said, I would urge them to sign up for the Substack and it's frisbee, F-R-I-S-B-Y dot substack dot com, frisbee dot substack dot com. Right. And it's and called it... Make Money and Stick It to the Man. <laughs> and it's macro? No, uh, well, there's a bit of macro. I just, I write, I write w- weekly commentary on the markets during the week on a Wednesday, Wednesday or Thursday. Um, and then on the Sunday, I'll do something more thoughtful. So I'm going to do a piece about land value tax this Sunday. Last week, I did something about um, uh, the ethnicity of the population in primary schools, because that will be the ethnicity of the population as a whole. whole. Quite interesting. And um, uh, and then I do me paid tips about once or twice a month. You'll get a paid tip. All right. Perfect. So, Dom, if you had one orange pill left to give to somebody... Who would you give it to and why? Oh, that's a good question. So, in other words, you turn that person into a Bitcoiner mm-hmm. and it works no matter yep. how idiotic they are. Yeah. <laughs> the purest of pills. Well, it's got to be, it's got to be the US president, doesn't it? I mean, because like, I already am going, well, my first thought was Boris. And then I just thought he's such an idiot that that it wouldn't um, or, you know, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England. And I thought, well, they're, too, they're such idiots. They'd never uh, implement. But if they've been orange pilled and they implement it, then it's got you've got to go for the most powerful man in the world, which is the US president. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, yeah, I don't see it happening anytime soon, unfortunately. No. And, yeah. But um, but it's creeping in. There's a couple of Bitcoiners in Parliament. Steve Baker likes it. Mm-hmm. There's a couple in. There's a couple in in America in um, Congress as well. So it's 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 sneaking in. Yeah, I've seen it in the US more. I've not heard too much about in the UK. So it's starting to happen there as well. No, it's not. I, well, Douglas Carswell likes like used to like Bitcoin, but he's now not in Parliament anymore. But he was there. And Steve Baker likes Bitcoin. He owns Bitcoin. Uh, um. And I think there are a couple of others in there who, you know, who own Bitcoin. I mean, that's the first thing to do is, is just have them own Bitcoin. Um, and I mean, Steve Baker is a hardened Austrian school economist. So he understands money. He hates inflation. He understands hard money and all the rest of it. So um, we, yeah, we, we need to, him to be the prime minister. We need him to at least uh, have an interview with you behind closed doors at some point and pick your brain. Well, he, we talk fine. all the time. He, he, know, he knows me. Um, the, but he's also very aware of what's possible and what's not possible, which is the art of politics, I guess. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about were, I think, three to four months ago, there were some um, – Bitcoin projections being projected around uh, like uh, certain places in London that you were tweeting about. Yeah, you know somebody, about that? somebody, I don't know. It was actually about a year ago. But yeah, somebody tweet, somebody put, projected the words money printer go brr on the Bank of England. <laughs> I've no idea who that could have been. All right, we'll leave it at that. Tom, it's been great, as always, to catch up, mate. Uh, Have a great day. 
Cheers. See you, mate. Thanks, Daniel. Bye. Bye. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Another rip with Dominic Frisbee. Always great fun. Always very insightful. Very, very impressed with Dom's historic knowledge when you get him talking about history. And if you've not heard the original rip that we did for the 21ism guys, I released it on this podcast as well. Go back and find it because we go through his book called Daylight Robbery. And he makes the case that every major turning point in history, the, the, the sole cause for that event to happen was down to a tax law or a tax code or some other kind of written in policy, tax policy, whatever. So go check it out. It's definitely worth reading if you've not read the book and it's definitely worth listening to our episode it was uh, it was great fun so thanks again dom for all of the fire content that you're putting out there if you guys want to follow him make sure you're following on twitter and as he shielded at the end there frisbee.substack.com you can keep up with his market commentary uh for those of you that are not stacking sats you absolutely 100% should be. Now is an app. I mean, it's always a good time to stack sats, but now we've had this nice little dip on the back of who knows what, who cares. But Bitcoin is on sale. Go hoover some up for yourself. Start stacking if you haven't. Get involved and set up a weekly plan, if not a daily plan. The more regular buys, the better. You can do that in the US with swanbitcoin.com. You can do it across Europe with Relay.ch, CoinCorner.com, and BitcoinReserve.com. These companies are all Bitcoin-only companies, and they've got your backs. If you are looking to get to some conferences to check out what's going on in real-life meat space and meet some of the Bitcoiners that you've been hanging out with on Twitter for the last couple of years, Check out the Liberty in Our Lifetime event that is happening in Prague, 21st to 23rd of October. You can use Princey20 at checkout for a 20% discount. That's P-R-I-N-C-E-Y 20. That'll get you 20% off. And you can check out BitcoinDay.io across the US that are running small meetups monthly. And you'll be able to get a 10% discount using OB10. Check all the links in the show notes because these links I'm updating periodically. They'll just take you straight to the landing page and you'll just be able to carry on signing up and doing whatever you need to do from that point. If you want to check out my book, it's called Choose Life. You can find that on Amazon. It's pinned to my Twitter profile. Been getting a lot of good feedback. Really appreciate those of you that have picked it up and reached out. Catch on the next show, guys. Thank you so much for listening.